All right. Well, after all of those announcements, let's, uh, let's jump into our passage for this morning. And we are going to be in, in Numbers chapter 27 today. You can turn there in your, in your, your Bible. Numbers 27, it's on page 136 in your house Bible. And we are coming to the end of a series that we've been in for, for quite a few months, actually. We have been, over these months, handling the Mosaic Law and the narrative surrounding the giving of the Mosaic Law, the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, and we're almost at the end of the, this series. Next week will be our final week. After that, we're going to uh, take a week and we're just going to have a music and prayer Sunday, and then we're going to launch into a Christmas series. Christmas is already about here, as J Chad just mentioned to us. So we just have, have this week and next week left of our, our series here on the, the Old Testament law. And today, we are going to read about the death of Moses. And so Moses, obviously a key figure throughout the whole biblical narrative, his life comes to an end here today in what we're going to read. Um, but there are some things that he, he passes on before he dies. And specifically today, we're going to talk about how he passed on leadership. There was this transition of leadership to his, his protege, Joshua. And the next week, we're going to cover some of the blessings and curses and encouragements that he gave the people in his final sermon. So let's read uh, Numbers 27, starting in verse 12. And we're going to start by just reading the first few verses, 12 through 14, to set the stage. So, um, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see, that the see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness, wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So God had already told Moses that he would not enter the promised land due to his sin. He had, he had sinned at those waters of Meribah, and so he was not going to enter the promised land. Now, Pastor Larson uh, gave a sermon just a couple weeks ago that described those events and, and, and Moses' sin and why he wouldn't be allowed to go into the promised land. Um, but, but Moses, so, so here, uh, God, God again reminds Moses that he's not going to go into the land, but... Let's add a little bit more detail um, to this, this whole scenario and this conversation between God and Moses as we go to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Now, Deuteronomy is a book that really records the final sermon of, uh, from Moses, and it's the final words that he's passing on to the people. And, and, and as he passes on these final encouragements, he also recounts a lot of the, the, the history and the events as the, the people traveled through the desert. But as he's doing that here in, in chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, he recounts this conversation that he had with God about not going into the promised land, but, uh, but instead seeing it from afar, from the top of this mountain. So flip over just a few pages in your Bibles to De Deuteronomy chapter 3, but keep a finger in Numbers 27. And we're going to read verses 23 through 29. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand, 
For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of his, this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remain in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So God reaffirms his, his original decision to not allow Moses to go. And this seems, this seems kind of harsh. Seems sort of harsh, especially after Moses had labored so much with these people and led them through the desert for these 40 years. It seems a little harsh that God, God does not relent here. And he still does not allow Moses to go into the land. Now, again, John Larson explained this a couple weeks ago, and he went into more detail um, about... Uh, about what was going on. And I'm not going to rehash everything that he said, but I do want to summarize a little bit and, um, and, and add a little bit for our purposes today of what, what happened here. Now, remember, um, well, well, let me just say this. There, there were probably two big reasons that God did not allow uh, uh, Moses to go into the, the promised land. I just want to, want to give you two reasons. Why couldn't Moses enter the land? And the first one as often happens in the Old Testament, God is foreshadowing a future reality. He's foreshadowing something bigger. Moses was, was not allowed to go, but instead he was going to transfer the leadership to a man named Joshua, or in, in another form, Yeshua. And, and, and this man who shared a form of a name with, with Jesus. And there's this picture that God is painting here that Moses would only take them so far, and then he was going to, to transfer that responsibility to another man. And I think this, this is, is, is demonstrating this, this big picture that God is trying to paint. Even the law of Moses could only take us so far, and then Jesus had to take us the rest of the way into the eternal promised land. And so, so God is foreshadowing a, a future reality and a much bigger picture it's not just about Moses' life. It's not just about Joshua's life. No, these are the, their, their lives are just shadows of a greater reality. So first of all, God was foreshadowing a future reality. But second, the sin of Moses was more significant than we initially think. And again, John explained this a, a couple weeks ago. Remember, God gave Moses specific instruction at the, the, the rock, the waters of, of Meribah. And he was to speak to this rock. And as he, he spoke... Um, water was to flow out of that rock and, and be provided for the people. Moses, though, instead of, of obeying what, what God's specific instructions were, he instead he took his staff and he hit the rock twice in anger. And then he spoke angry, rash words to the people. And we don't know exactly what was said or how this looked, but I think we can be pretty confident that, that, that Moses was showing a great amount of, of irreverence towards God here. He was treating God irreverently. And this was the last thing that the people needed. These people were already irreverent. These people were already immature, petty, vain. And they did not need to see their leader acting like they had acted. 
Besides, irreverence towards God is a big deal. It's not just a minor offense. We can think it is at times, but it is not to treat God dishonorably. It's not a minor thing to to break the fourth commandment, to take the Lord's name in vain and, and treat him as small and insignificant. It is a significant thing to, to treat God with irreverence. And so when, when God brought about this consequence for, for Moses, it was an appropriate one. He was trying to, to um, uh, display something about who he was, and he was trying to uphold his, his holiness. And I think this, um, this draws out an ever-present tension. This tension that we see throughout the Bible and in our, in our own lives, this tension between the holiness and the grace of God. It's always there. God is, is infinitely holy and God is infinitely loving. And, and neither can be sacrificed for the other. And in the Bible, we read through the Bible and we see sometimes there are, there are stories in the Bible or statements in the Bible that really draw out God's, God's grace, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His acceptance. And sometimes we read stories like we are, are, are now that really seem to draw out God's, God's holiness and, and God's, God's great righteousness and that, that He upholds His standards and that He will not... Um, let his holiness be, be lessened, that he must maintain himself as God. And we see this, this constant tension, and we see, it, we see it here. And so God expresses his holiness here by, by drawing this line and maintaining this consequence for Moses. Now, of course, this, te- this, this consequence was, was a temporary one, God would bring Moses into the eternal promised land very shortly. And, and uh, in just, a, uh, just not too long from these events, Moses would die, and he would experience life with God forever. And later in the New Testament, we see Moses speaking with Jesus, and we know that one day if we have trusted in Jesus, we will see Moses. And so this was a temporary consequence, and yet it was still a, still a significant one. But sometimes... You know, this is, this is true of our own lives as well. We, we sin, but if we do trust Jesus, that the eternal consequence, the eternal punishment for that sin is removed, and yet sometimes we still experience the present ramifications in this life for that sin. And, 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 and as we do, God's holiness is upheld. Sometimes he graciously relieves those ramifications, but in his ultimate wisdom, he chooses when to maintain a standard in order to preserve what is good and right. And he does that here. And so it was appropriate, and yet still, it must have been incredibly difficult for Moses. I was trying to think about this throughout this last week, trying to to put myself in the shoes of Moses and, and just imagine how challenging this would have been to miss out on this. Um... He had spent 40 years leading this people through the desert, this, this obstinate, belligerent people, these people who had rejected him and, and God's leadership over and over again, just as we read about in recent weeks. He carried an enormous burden, this leadership burden. He was leading this mobile city of over 2 million people across the desert. There was all kinds of burden and responsibility in that. 
40 years ago, he was on the cusp of entering into the land, but due to the, the unfaithfulness of the people, he was prevented from doing so back then as well, even though it was right there for the taking. He had given and sacrificed and exhausted himself to lead this, these people, intervening for them multiple times when God was about to destroy him, and now he couldn't enter the land. He could only see it from afar. This would have been incredibly difficult. And many of us have experienced those kinds of difficulties too, where we've worked so hard for something and and our whole life is pointed in a certain direction. And then when it seems to be right there for the taking, it it evaporates and it's swept away. And that's what happened with with Moses. The last 40 years, he had been working towards this goal of entering the promised land and leading the people there. And now he was right there and he wasn't going to be able to do it. Incredibly difficult. And at this point, I think it would have been very easy and very natural to descend in, into this, this self-pity and, and resentment, resentment towards the people, resentment towards God himself. The people had prevented him from going. God wasn't willing to relent. Moses had given and given and given of himself, and one little mistake cost him his life's goal. The natural human reaction would have been bitterness. Seems very appropriate. And yet, that's not how Moses responded. And again, as I was reading this this past week, it just um, stood out to me like it, it hadn't before. That Moses demonstrates a remarkable grace in his response here. It's really pretty amazing. And I believe that, that Moses' example here is one of the more, more compelling examples, human examples, that we see in the Bible. Let's read it um, by going back to Numbers, sorry, Numbers 27, not 23 there, and uh, continuing to read through our passage. So Numbers 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Okay, so after hearing from God that that he again would not enter into the land, even though he, he pleaded with God again, he has the courage to speak to God. He speaks to God, but it's not a, a, that wallowing self-pity. He doesn't whine. He doesn't beg again. Instead, he makes a request. He makes this amazing request. At first, he, he addresses God with, with this, this title. He says, the God of the spirits of all flesh. And this is an unusual title for God. We don't see that very often in the Bible. But, but Moses seems to be acknowledging God's great sovereignty and especially his ability to see inside and understand every human heart which is why he can make the request that he then makes. He asks God to give the people another, another man to lead. And, and he's moved past his earlier failure, and it seems like he has this, this renewed heart and concern for the people. He's not just, again, wallowing in that self-pity that he doesn't get a go. He's, he's concerned about the people, the same people that, that had rejected him, over and over that were fickle, that constantly complained and grumbled. Now he's, he's turned his heart to have a concern for them, 
And, and he was concerned that they would be like sheep without a shepherd unless God appointed and empowered somebody to lead them. He knew that these people were fickle and they could easily stray, but instead of resenting them for their rebellious tendencies, he, he expresses concern for them. And I believe this is an extraordinary example. Rather than anger towards God or, or bitterness towards the people, he strives to make sure that they are set up well to enter the land. His concern is not first and foremost for, for himself and for, for the disappointment that he's experiencing, but instead for these obstinate, belligerent people that cost him his shot at entering the land. It's a remarkable grace and acceptance of God's will and desire, desire for good outside of himself. And it reminds me of a, a few other characters in the Bible or, or um, um, instances in the Bible where this kind of, of, of grace is demonstrated. Think of, of, of David. David, as we know, was, was a great leader and a great king, and he had a, had a heart to seek God, and his heart was inclined towards God. But then, of course, he falters, and he sins in, in an extraordinary way. But after he, he sins and then returns to the Lord, renews his heart in the Lord, we see a similar heart to what we just saw in Moses. In First Chronicles 17, David desired to build a temple for the Lord, and I wanted to read about that. First Chronicles 17, 1 through 4, and then 11 through 12. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. And then we skip down to verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So God will not let David be the one to build him a temple. Elsewhere we read because it was, it was because David was a man of blood. So God prohibits him from building it and instead says that his offspring would, would do it. David wouldn't see it at all. But I appreciate how David responds and what he does later to this disappointment. First Chronicles 29 verses 1 through 3. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for, for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, and so on. David seemed to accept God's decision to not, not have him build a temple, but then he does everything in his, power to, in his power to equip his son Solomon to build it. And, and we could read more about this, but he goes to great lengths to make preparations for his son, even though he wasn't going to see the fruit of his labors. And, and, and I think this is the same kind of, of, of heart, the same kind of spirit that we saw in Moses David was disappointed. He wasn't going to, to experience everything that he desired to experience, but he turned his heart towards equipping somebody else and, and poured himself into setting up the next generation for, for experiencing the goodness that he had desired. 
Similarly, we could go to John the Baptist. It's the same kind of heart. John's task on this earth was specifically to prepare for somebody else, for Jesus. He was to get the people ready for Jesus. When, when, when he came, though, he amassed this huge following. He was this great prophet. And, and hundreds and thousands of people followed John. But eventually that following began to be transferred to Jesus, as, as was the intention. And we read about it here in John 3. So John 3, verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Okay, so John's followers are concerned about this. A lot of people are leaving you, John, and they're going to, to this other man. They're going to Jesus. And, and that, that was a little disconcerting and kind of rattling for these followers because they had been following John along with this huge following. And, and although John, John knew that this was his task to, to uh, prepare for Jesus, I imagine that this still could have been challenging. Okay, after influencing all of these thousands of people for so long and being seen as a great prophet, to, to see that following begin to fade still must have challenged his identity. I, I, I think that would have. But how did John respond? Well, let's read about it. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is an amazing example. First, he states that anything given is simply a gift. We have no right to demand something more. Everything good is simply undeserved generosity from God. And so if he had a position of influence, it was just because God gave it to him. But then he goes on and he uses this analogy with the, the, the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. And, and he, he speaks of the friend of the bridegroom rejoicing in his friend's celebration. You know, sharing that joy, not demanding that he be the bridegroom, but instead entering into the joy of his friend. And then there's the famous line that he ends with, he must increase, but I must decrease. So, so there's this surrendering of, of position for the sake of, of exalting another. And, and this is the spirit that I think we see in many places in the Bible, and it's going to reflect the spirit of, of Jesus, as we'll see in a, in a little bit. But, but there are several examples of this in the Bible where somebody has, has a position or has an opportunity, and they're about to take hold of that opportunity, and then it's taken away, but they are able to, to, to transfer that opportunity to somebody else. To, to build up somebody else in order to take what they had longed for. I think there's a remarkable humility there, a remarkable grace. And that's what Moses does in Numbers 27, where he, he, he had every reason to be disappointed and he could have cried out, this is unfair that I don't get to go, but instead he, he turned his focus to preparing, to preparing Joshua to take the people where Moses couldn't go. 
Now, after that, God, of course, provides. If we go back to Numbers 27, verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed Moses. So God had been, been preparing Joshua, Joshua for quite some time. He had been with Moses throughout. And so God instructs Moses to publicly commission him. And he lays his hands on him as a, as a symbol of authority and power being transferred. He also includes Ele, Eleazar the priest as a demonstration of the priesthood being united with this new leader as well. But I think this, this shows that, that God can provide and God is not dependent on a specific person. But he can certainly raise up others for his purposes. And that, that's what he was doing all along with Joshua. And then this transition is made where, where Moses lays his hands on Joshua and Joshua is empowered for this task to complete what Moses would not. Okay, now let's skip ahead. We're going to read about the death of Moses and we're going to do that in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And so turn a few pages ahead. Deuteronomy 34 is going to be on page 177 in your house Bible. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His, eyes, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of, of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his, his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the life of Moses, one of the key figures in the biblical narrative, comes to an end. And he was remembered for a few things. He, he performed amazing miracles in Egypt and throughout their time in the desert. He experienced this unique intimacy with God, um, knowing him face to face. But he also passed on this spirit of wisdom to Joshua. 
And that, so that, that spirit could persist. And again, as we get to the, the close of this series and the close of, of Moses' life, I think that is one of the, the things that we, we can remember about Moses here is that he was willing to turn his focus from his own disappointment to the equipping and to the empowerment of another. Now, what, what can we learn from these, these things? What can we, we learn from the example of Moses? Well, I think there are two main applications that I'd like to touch on this morning. And the, the first one is just simply to trust God in, in disappointment. Moses obviously desired to enter the promised land. His entire life had been pointing in that direction. He could taste it, and he asked God to relent on his discipline and allow him to go. But God upheld his original decision. Moses, however, did not sulk. He did not cry out that this was unfair, this was unjust. He didn't wallow in self-pity. Instead, he accepted God's ways as, as right. He believed that God in his holiness and his ultimate wisdom could be trusted and his will submitted to. Now, this, this can be very relatable. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we are often disappointed. And we assume that we should receive something great. We, we deserve it. We fix our minds on it. We work hard for it. Our, our life points in a certain direction. And we, when we don't receive what we think we should, it's easy to be resentful and to question God and, and perhaps to pull away from him. But God is weaving everything together for his good purposes. And he, he perfectly balances in every situation the, the presentation of his holiness and the presentation of his grace. And, and sometimes he withholds, sometimes he even disciplines, as it describes in Hebrews chapter 12, and like what he did here with Moses. But we can trust that he is, he is withholding and he is giving in right ways in order to present his grace and his holiness in appropriate ways. And in the case of Moses, as I mentioned earlier, his life was just a shadow of a bigger reality. God wanted to create a, a, a picture here where, where Moses was only allowed to bring the people so far before Yeshua took them all the way in. And similarly, God may have bigger plans for our lives. He's communicating something bigger about himself. It's not just our our narrow view of our immediate disappointment that he's concerned most about. Maybe he is doing something much bigger. He's presenting a much bigger reality through our disappointments. But secondly, I think we can seek the promotion of others, even if it costs us position and status. And this, again, is what really stood out to me from the life of Moses here, or, or, or the, the end of the life of Moses that he was able to do this with, with Joshua. And I think we can as well. Moses moved on quickly, it, it seems, from his disappointment, and then he focused on the good of the community, um, the, the purposes of God, and the empowerment of a, of a new leader. And I think there's something in his example that should stir us to, to consider if the, the same kind of spirit is, is, is in us and in our church for us, I, I think it can stir a, a, an attempt to build a, a spirit of, of mentorship in our church, a spirit that's eager for authority to be passed on to others. It's eager for others to be built up and take on new responsibilities. It's, it's willing to take a back seat for others' success. 
it, it, it releases position and, and desire so that others can go beyond ourselves. You know, we, um, we have a, a, a vision statement here at, at, at Summit View, and there are five parts of the vision statement. We went over that um, several weeks ago. And, um, and you can go to our website and, and, and go to the About tab, and, and you can see um, our vision statement explained. And there are, are these five points of our vision statement of, of delighting in God and loving one another and multiplying Christ followers and blessing Fort Collins and, 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 um, and, 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 and then going to the ends of the earth, um, like, like we just mentioned earlier with... Uh, with perspectives that we are expanding globally. But we have three core values under each one of those vision points. And, and under the multiplying Christ followers vision point, we have these three values, and one of them is, is the next generation. It's a value. And the way that we describe that value is, is, is like this, passing on faith to children, teens, and young adults, while also creating a culture that values the entrustment of responsibility to the less experienced for the sake of training. I think that's something that we want to emphasize here. We want to develop that spirit of mentorship here in our church. That, that, that we, we, we don't um, tight-fistedly hold on to position, but instead we release. And I believe that every one of us has a circle that we're in where God, God gives us opportunity to, to invest and then release and to, to build and then take a step back. And I wonder if we can consider what that looks like in each one of our lives. See, you know, God, God has equipped me not to, to, to go all the way perhaps, but maybe to take things part of the way and then let somebody else take it further. And I would hope that we could grow in that kind of, of spirit, that we would be a, a church that, that releases position and authority and looks for ways to do that. You might consider, what does that look like in your circle? Is there there's someone to, to release to, to build up and then empower and mobilize and, and equip? Because I think that is a spirit that pleases God so much when we are willing to take that step back and have somebody else go further. Now, of course... This all reflects the, the, the heart of Jesus and really what he did. And, um, and I would like to close just by reading a, a passage, again, out of Philippians chapter 2, that captures this heart of Jesus. And, Ben, you can go ahead and come on back up as I do, as I read this. I closed with this passage uh, several weeks ago. I'm going to close with it again. I might just close with it every, every time I get up here. This is... A, Great passage here, but Philippians 2 describes how we are to imitate the example of Jesus in this kind of thing that I've been talking about. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus, although he was God, he emptied himself so that others could be brought in to God's family.